Space. The Final Frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterpod. Its continuing mission. To explore strange old films. To seek out new flicks and review them incessantly. To boldly go where several have gone before. <laughs> when you said you want to do the intro, I didn't know it was going to be a goddamn Star Trek thing, but I'll take it. We're the pod people. It's relevant-ish. <laughs> and we're back for our part two, two-year birthday spectacular. I'm Big Baby Beppino, Matisse Van Rossum. And hey, I'm assimilating the human race over here. I may look like Ben Sheets. I may talk like Ben Sheets, but I'm not Ben Sheets. Get off my podcast. <laughs> well, I think you all know me as... <laughs> Cleveland Mosier. How's it going, y'all? <laughs> it's pod time again. We've been waiting. We've been hoping. And those pods, we got them. And we are the pods. <laughs> We got pods for days. Uh, as we stated in our last episode, tonight we're covering Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978. Correcting myself from last episode when I kept saying 79. Tisk tisk. I know, I should Oof. be fired. Mm-hmm. You're already canceled. I'm so. already canceled, so let's mm-hmm. just go ahead and <laughs> do the <laughs> final death blow. Yep. So this film is directed by Philip Kaufman, uh, and it stars Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum, and Veronica Cartwright. And Leonard Nimoy. Let's and not Leonard forget. Nimoy. That's right, we definitely can't forget Leonard Nimoy. When seeds drift to Earth from space, mysterious pods begin to grow and invade San Francisco, replicating the residents' bodies one at a time. This is a great movie. Just get that out there right now. That's an understatement. Yeah. Once again, uh, y'all really picked a great one. I said it last episode, but now I feel it. Well, uh, Tisa and I reason why. <laughs> both seen this movie before. Yes. You, this is your this first is your time. First that, that is correct. And uh, what a watch. It's been years since I've seen it, and I had forgotten a lot of the great details. And in a lot of ways, it was like watching it for the first time again. It's still just such an exciting, spooky, tense, uh, sinister film. Yeah, agreed. Well, the interesting thing to me is I had seen this movie a couple times before, but I had never seen it so close to the original. So it surprised me how many things they pulled from the original in terms of like plot points. It's little a, parallels. It's a, parallels, uh, yeah. it's a very faithful adaptation uh, made with love, but updated and modernized. And I think is better for it. It's It might be one of the best examples like of a remake I could I could pull. Like, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's yeah. In every respect, it pays homage. It absolutely has its own voice. Um, and it, it, it stands on the st- shoulders of a well-established giant. Like, just well done. Like, well done movie. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Philip Kaufman has only directed a handful of films. Uh, I haven't seen or heard of most of them. But what is interesting is that Philip Kaufman wrote the original screenplay for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Excellent. If you look at his uh, writing credits on IMDb, every single Indiana Jones property, including the video games, he has a writing credit on because he created the characters. So uh, That's actually surprising because I remember hearing so much, and this is a tangent, but hearing so much of 
Lucas and Spielberg brainstorming ideas for the Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. And, well, uh, I'm sure they are, it it seems like they're they were just working off of his original screenplay, I think. And I yeah, I had always thought the same thing. Like when you think of Indiana Jones, you think of like it being Spielberg and Lucas's baby. And I <laughs> I think it is in many ways, but uh well, like like all films, yeah, there's such a collaborative work, but so much of the credit goes to the directors. But uh Philip Kaufman wrote and directed uh, this adaptation of Body Snatchers, and uh, it's it's frankly kind of surprising that he hasn't done more of like real renown, or that he's not more well regarded. Because I think this film is a, a masterclass in direction and writing too. Yeah, absolutely, I, I can't agree more. It just left me. You know, when you're you're eating like a really nice meal, and it's probably been a while since you've had a nice meal, and you're about halfway through it, and you're already sad that you're going to have to finish the meal and that you can't just keep enjoying it forever and ever and ever that that's how the i felt about halfway through this film i was like oh man this movie has to end at some point and then i can't keep watching it I anymore know. like i i just want to run it again well as we talked about in our last episode about the original film that one was a very tight 80 minutes no fat, you know, pretty brisk pace once it picked up and just kind of relentless. And Ben, you had talked about wishing for more time to sort of breathe. And I had said that I wish that there was more with sort of examining people being wrong and something Mm -hmm. being different and sinister about them. Wish there was a little bit more of that. I think that this film addresses both of those. Oh, absolutely. It's about 40 minutes longer than the original film it's two hours it has significantly more space and a slower deliberate pacing but it's so spooky from the very beginning and you get a ton of people behaving strangely it's a fucking feast yeah it's just it's so rich with little details well i was gonna ask you cleveland uh when i brought that up in the last episode you expressed a concern about it not being subtle enough and that it might hurt the low-key spookiness of the film how do you feel when it's done that way in this one i'm I'm so glad you asked me that first off i just have to say that literally every complaint well except for one hilariously tiny detail Literally every complaint that I had in the first film was was addressed exactly how I would have hoped they would have. It might focus more on the pods immediately, but I think that that's, that's uh, called for. Um, or at least on the, the relevancy of the invasion. Like, even then, we just see them as the small pods. Uh-huh. We don't see the, the their full horror. But even after the same sequence that occurs in the prior film where we get them in the garden... Um, and we see them for what they really are as they bloom and the people emerge from them. Even after that, when you see people carting the pods, they're done in shadow and secrecy. Even when you see like them in, in it's at large amounts, it's mm-hmm. at night. They're, they're always covered in shadow. There's still a, an elusive mystery to them and a weight to them also. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is quite yeah. nice. They're, they're, they're carrying them under their arms. Uh, yeah, it feels like there's some effort to lift them, like they have some mass. Another complaint from the last one that they fixed. Yep. Uh, there, there is a, a constant state of foreboding mystery. The, the rules are still established as well, but they're established um, through much more organic means. Yes. The dialogue is exquisite. Uh, but to just to cover your your question, um, I love the shit out of it. I thought I thought this is this is how you do cosmic horror. And you can see the influence this film had on so many of my favorites as well. Like Annihilation, for instance. Mm-hmm. Like in, in the prior film, their purpose 
inherently is the same. The same can be said that they are sort of act as like a cancerous growth. In this film, that point comes so much more home, especially because we see them at the beginning as these these sort of organic creatures. They seem way more sinister and dangerous in this one. And alien, too. I think a a part of the charm of the original one, not to, to like shit on it, is that the pod people do still seem like people. Well, that's the thing. Like, I was gonna say, you know, when we introduce the pod people in this movie, it's less subtle just because of the juxtaposition with our leading actress's husband in mm. it um like jeffrey yeah jeffrey he uh he's super into golden state warriors and is watching basketball constantly right after the transformation it's just a night and day shift right well the first and, time she realizes something wrong is when she's like oh are we still going to the warriors game tonight he's like oh no i can't i gave him the tickets to one of my patients she's like what it's not subtle in characterization but it works because you know it's not about that subtlety as much like you said there is a a day for night shift well brooke adams is uh i i love that in this film she and donald sutherland kind of share the protagonist role so we see a lot from both of their perspectives and Similar to the original, he's the one who sort of requires a lot of convincing that something is wrong. In this one, we get to see a lot more of her sort of exploration and investigation of what's going on. Like her following Jeffrey to all of these mysterious meetings with strange people in like fields and in alleys and like passing these strange wrapped objects back and forth between each other. Isn't that exactly what I was requesting? Like in the in the last episode yeah. like how great to just have that oh wait look someone has done exact ah mm. well Sorry, i can't even talk it's right really I'm just so interesting because it it kind of reflects the cultural norms at the time like in the 50s you know it was more common to treat women as subservient and not necessarily believe them as much and in this film women's lib happened a little more there's you a know, little bit of progress yeah no yeah. there was some independence there but some of the themes you know the cold war had cooled down in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um so it was replaced by stuff like pop psychology in this movie in a really interesting way Leonard Nimoy's and, character, yeah, the uh, the psychiatrist, the the celebrity psychiatrist. Well, yeah, said. and we, we we were talking about shrinks in the first movie. Yeah, cultural opinions of them definitely changed between the twenty years in an interesting way. They handle that really well in this movie as well because. Leonard Nimoy is a pretty big part of it. He's he's in a lot of the movie, but because he's supposed to be like this logical uh, psychiatrist, like man of reason, he's not particularly emotional himself. So the fact that he has been a pod person all along by when they finally reveal that, it is a little bit more ambiguous because you can't just write off as like, oh, he must be one of them. He's emotionless. It's like, well, no, he's the skeptical character. You know, he, he plays that role of trying to calm them down and tell them that nothing's wrong. But really, just so they don't they don't find out the, the grand conspiracy. Now, do you believe that he was with them all along? I, yeah, be, I believe so. Because like, yeah. you, 
you do see him interacting with some of them. I think he's, yeah, I think he's been a pod person from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And when he interacts with some of those other ones, they sort of explain it off as like, well, he's a celebrity psychologist. Like, people know him, you know? Like, he treats the mayor of San Francisco, you know, he's one of his patients. They easily explain that away, so you really don't know whether Leonard Nimoy is one of them for a long time. And I really like that. I I like the ambiguity of that. And what a perfect actor to get for it, too. Spock. (laughs) Well, and having watched a lot of that, there is still a a key difference in his roles. He isn't playing the same, like, emotionless character in, uh, that he does in Star Trek. Yeah, I haven't watched a ton of original Star Trek, but he definitely feels more, uh, Human. uh, Yeah, human. In in this this. film. He he feels like a human who's been corrupted. He doesn't feel like an alien that only uses logic and, you know, is always a computer. He feels like something that's trying to hide that. And that's that's quite impressive to have such a subtlety of range and not just fill the exact same role, which well, is almost certainly why they hired I, him. I always re- I, I remember being like very pleasantly surprised with his performance the first time I saw this movie because I really only had experienced him as Spock and even then only in passing because I've never been a Star Trek person. Having that idea of him as just this sort of like very flat, emotionless kind of cardboard character, and then to see the subtlety of his range in this movie, where he's still playing like a, a sort of cold, logical character, but it feels like a person. It hit a lot of like ooey gooey sort of special moments for me because my association with Leonard Nimoy growing up was his voiceovers for um, book on tape uh, radio series called Alien Voices. Uh, where they would they would do uh, audio recordings of like H.G. Wells narratives mm-hmm. and such, you know, and then later on with with Star Trek as well. So that just Leonard Nimoy is just always sort of represented like astral horror to me. He's so good at it. He just encapsulates like all that that wonderful like that wonderful sense of deductive reasoning of the things that cannot be deduced. I uh, saw a trivia tidbit that I thought was really funny and also kind of stupid. We all commented on it, that like weird leather, like half glove that he's wearing that looks like an archery yeah, I, glove. I've seen it before yeah. in, in old films. And I, I was reading about it before we started recording that he specifically requested to wear that so he would be more of a distinct character. Because he had had a friend who wore one to, like, cover a burn or something on his hand to keep it from, like, getting irritated. So he's like, yeah, I want to be a more distinct character, so let me wear this, like, distinctive thing. It's like, dude, you're fucking Leonard Nimoy. You're already the most distinct figure in the movie. Yeah, I mean, we pointed it out, though, so mission accomplished, I guess. (laughs) That and Donald Sutherland's wool tie. (laughs) Like, thick-knit wool tie weird the 70s were a weird time man (laughs) but this this film does an incredible job of encapsulating the 70s it almost felt like a remake that was made now to a like a like a stranger things almost degree of uh, an attempt to encapsulate the 70s you have like the street performer who is just like an essentially like a bob dylan type with a banjo he's doing like you know like city folk his banjo part and was played by uh, jerry garcia no shit yeah how about that yeah there are just so many subtle moments like, of course the mustaches and just all the, the yeah all of the mustaches the, those dingy and the, alleyways and the, like, the cinematography it just it feels so flared pants legs and it's well, it's all the good elements of of 70s cinema and and uh pop culture too it, it never feels like 
overplaced or they're just trying to make it a time capsule movie. Well, it's like the, quintessential seven. Yeah, hour. well, the, the thing I love is not only does it nail the, the, the aesthetics of urban 70s excellently, mm-hmm. um, it also takes the idea of body snatchers from the 50s and reimagines it into the cultural ideas of the late 70s, where instead of communist paranoia, it's more about the fear of the death of the counterculture. They do use the term conspiracy multiple times in the movie, which is something else that I wanted to bring up in that same vein. Because though the Cold War was still happening, like you mentioned earlier, but it had significantly cooled down at this mm-hmm. point. Mutually assured destruction was pretty assured. Right, and it was and the invasion of the commies was somewhat less of a fear than the 50s and you know this is around the same time that we're getting stuff like taxi driver that's like really emblematic of post-vietnam fear and mistrust of the government and paranoia well it's funny and the and nixon and the idea of a conspiracy this this film was shot by the same guy that did Taxi Driver. The cinematographer was oh, the, same. the same. But yeah, but especially I'm with the that. end of the 70s, you know, in post Vietnam, like mm-hmm. that's when the rise of the professional class and the businessmen and corporate culture really started and it carried on to the 80s and 90s in a big way. And I think seeing the effects of Vietnam and kind of the the death of the counterculture mm-hmm. and the the peace movement after Vietnam really affected this movie in a lot of ways and thematically I think yeah. you're absolutely right. No, I'm not at all surprised and I'm really keen to learn that it was the same cinematographer as Taxi Driver because it has those same moments of like just like lightning striking out of the shadows of this like the figures faces out of the dark, you know, just like Caravaggio's paintings, which is was the the intent with Taxi Driver. I love that. It's it's just my favorite. Well, yeah, it's really well shot. I I love the style. It really so perfectly captures uh, feelings of paranoia. Uh, there's a lot of sort of like off off kilter cinematography. A lot of Dutch angles. Uh, a lot of like under lighting to sort of like make people look skeletal and weird. And multiple sequences. The first one with Brooke Adams, and then later again with Donald Sutherland of him like walking around the city, just sort of like having a meltdown. Like who is a pod person and who isn't? It's all handheld and you know sort of like rocking like a boat. Yeah, kind of absolutely. And, well, yeah, it just. It makes it really makes you feel like ah they're everywhere they're all around me. It's definitely an off kilter feeling, mm-hmm. and the the tone is set so well. One of the the small elements that I really like of it being set in San Francisco is a lot of the streets are set on hills, right? So you're at an angle, so you get this weird off kilter effect. Where is it a Dutch angle? Is it just a hilly street? Sometimes they'll make it so the the character is kind of sideways, but the street is is level, yeah, yeah, level. And it'll have the camera like tracking up or down to to really emphasize that like horizon line sort of like sinking and raising mm-hmm. again. The sequence, for example, they're at the the book release for the psychologist psychiatrist. Oh, for- 
uh, Leonard Nimoy's and, new book. Uh, you get the excellent sequence where uh, Donald Sutherland is on the phone trying to get the police, and Jeff Goldblum is trying to talk over him. But you have this fantastic, like, fun distorted, yeah, funhouse yeah. mirror. And it works so well with yeah, the ideas of, you know, the the altered self. A lot kind of mirrors of, in this film and reflections yeah. used. Yeah. Uh, and, silo- are, and silhouettes, like, too. Like, at least, at least six, like, or eight, like, mirrors and reflections, if if not well more. And on that specific note, literally every sequence in this film just contained shots and uh, just singular frames that would have been the highlight, singularly, of any film. This movie just has one banger shot after another i yeah, mean just it's just really really well phenomenal shot. composition everything is is so intentionally placed not only for composition but for like color use as well like mm. the shower sequences most of the curtains in the shower rooms are like kind of a, a kind of an alien like dull green and yellow but there's the sequence with uh when they're looking at the body and one of those shower curtains has this like kind of scale like pattern on it and it's just it's it's taking like a, a large third of the frame and just these you always are getting these like plants and like very intentional alien textures and it's it's the kind of shower curtain you'd see a lot in the 70s but just the lighting on it the way it's portrayed it just feels like reptilian and so like unfamiliar alien, yeah. and they keep doing that with with everyday objects in this movie and what makes it so powerful is like Wes Anderson often gets applauded for like his like idyllic framing and how his shots look like Norman Rockwell it's paintings all symmetrical and and it's all and, symmetrical and yeah. everything in it is intentional this film you can credit it for the same thing but it but every element of it can be excused away and still feel genuine it's just it's so masterfully like hidden as well at times. I mean, like the funhouse mirror sort of stuff in the background is is very apparent, but it's it's very like sumptuous and it's it's a weird mirror in a building. Like it's the kind of thing you would see in the seventies. Well, the right. thing it, about it, it still it feels too, it doesn't feel out of place. It's no, yeah, exactly. It feels like it belongs there, but it serves as a way to sort of warp. Mm-hmm your perception yeah. in the way it's placed in the frame. Which, Realism enhanced. Yeah. It's very intentional. It's not totally. vanity. Yes. You know? Or masturbatory. Uh, yeah. Which is a big problem that I have with Wes Anderson. I'm not going to go off down that tangent, but I agree with you. Like the art to like placing things very intentionally in movies is that you don't notice how intentional it is that it just feels natural and it makes you feel exactly what the director wants you to that's this film in a nutshell yes like i felt i always feel like i'm being guided along and that i'm like meant to feel all of these specific things like it just feels like a really like a good video game you know that <laughs> takes you right you know where you need to go and you hit all of the right uh feelings mm-hmm I, I kept catching myself like in the middle of a sequence, like not remembering how I got there because there's so many which like is, interlude shots and things that it just, it, it just, it becomes so nebulous and flowing, which is great because they can't go to sleep or the pods will get them. Mm-hmm. So once they really start to get sleep deprived, you feel sort of sleep deprived along with them. You definitely lose track of time. Absolutely. Which is really really excellent it just increases that feeling of paranoia and and tension and fear it's like if you can't keep track of time you how long have i been here you know how much time has passed Uh, well and they they make that threat of falling asleep very real in this movie you know one of the complaints we had with the the original was it was kind of nebulous in the rules of that where like if you fall asleep who knows how long it takes 
Uh, in this movie, we see it directly. You know, mm-hmm. Jeff Goldblum falls asleep and his double's eyes open. Open immediately. Yeah. You mentioned it earlier, Cleveland, that that set piece, the location of the the mud bath uh, spa <laughs> is uh, is awesome. I love everything there. It's so spooky, especially once they find the body. Yeah, and I love I love the those characters as well, uh, like Jeff Goldblum, and then also I totally um, forgot Jeff Goldblum was in this movie. Yeah, and he's he's delightful. He, yeah, he's, he's great. great. He, um, mm-hmm. And he and he plays like a, a sort of a similar character to his his usual ones, where he sort of rambles a little. He's bit. Very and Jeff, thing, Go- yeah. but, and he's very Jeff. Yeah, but he's very good at that, and it works quite well. He's definitely a bit of a comic relief in this movie, especially towards the beginning yeah. half of the movie. His uh, wife is one of the. Uh, either the manager or works at the the mud bath. I think they own. I believe it. they do. Yeah, but yeah, because it's it's the Belichick mud bath. Right, right. Is, that's yeah, correct. So they own it. And yeah, his wife played by Veronica Cartwright, who had an absolutely banger couple of years with this movie, and then the next year, Alien. Yeah. Oh my God, you're yeah. right. That is the same actress. Uh-huh. Awesome. Yeah, I I really liked her her characterization uh, and this the dialogue front to back in this movie is is ace. It's so genuine and believable. Yeah. Our protagonist mumbles a lot, and it it feels like a quiet, underspoken person. It doesn't feel like poor acting. It just feels like he's playing that kind of a guy. But with Jeff Goldblum and with Veronica Cartwright, there's a sequence. Uh, later on when they're really coming to the realization of the the creatures the, yeah. that they exist and they're trying to rationalize them she is the one to bring up like like uh like oh it's it's like the 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 aliens that came in the past and like you know like genetically bred the apes and stuff to to be you know it's like the anunnaki sort yeah. of sort of bullshit thing and it's like She's the perfect character, like, in that group to bring it up because she's, just, like, a civilian. Like, she's the one who, um, like, she just, like, runs the, the mud bath place. Like, it, it's not the scientist, you know, who brings that up. How nice is it well, and once that we again, get that, that parallel with, like, people who aren't aren't just military, like, I'm Mr. Scientist, man. They're civilian scientists. And it's, and it's a further uh, extension of the idea of conspiracy uh, and, and, you know, sort of, like, wild theories, quote-unquote harebrained theories. What I love about her character in this movie, too, is while she is sort of one of the more just sort of, like, freaked out by what's going on, like, she has a hard time, like, getting a hold of herself through a lot of the beginning part, I love that they don't just relegate her to that role like they do her character in the original one, where she's just, like, the hysterical woman who needs to continually be sedated where she is the one who actually figures out that you can hide among them yeah. by pretending to not have any emotions and just like sort of blending in which is a great scene when they run into her again after they've been separated and it's like there's that minute like oh is she one of them is she about to like start shrieking and pointing at them and then she's like no, I've been hiding among them for hours. It's like, yes, fuck yeah, awesome. And she she does it so well that she ends up being the last survivor. Yeah, well, I mean, we see we see her successfully do it again a few minutes after that when they're all trying, and Brooke Adams is scared by the uh, the man dog. Oh yeah, which um, is excellently done. Awesome. The effects in general in this movie are really excellent, but I was really taken aback by that dog. It, it's very the thing 
or the fly in terms of body right. horror. Well, they they have that moment in the last one we didn't talk about it at all, where they're trying to blend in, and then like a dog runs out into the street and almost gets hit by a truck, and like that's what makes the girlfriend like cry out and show emotion. What a great way and to I parallel always, that. I always thought that I thought in that that part it was like a little trite. It's like you really can't control yourself to like that degree, but in this one, like a dog with a man's face walks up to you, especially like, when it's established. Like we see them past the the hobo on the street or the the street performer with his dog and they they i think they crush the pod so well yeah he like kicks it he kicks and something it. comes out of it but which you, which means like they they fucked up the it's processing and that's and probably how that dog the cre- thing like was made that. or so that even that's, that's even explained a little bit or that there's i i thought it might be just because there's only the one pod and there's the two of them sleeping right next to each other so it kind of absorbed both of them but you might be right it might also have to do he with he fucked up and kicking it when they walk past but yeah that moment is such like a shock too because we haven't seen anything like that up till that point like we've seen some really uh, gross, horrifying stuff, but then it's just like the uh, a fucking dog with a man's face walks up, and we're also just like, ah, what the fuck? Yeah. And it, and Brooke Adams believably also reacts, and they have to run, but you see that Veronica Cartwright is Holds she, fast. she has yeah she has no reaction to it and she keeps moving in the line so it's like she's she's been doing it for hours so who knows what kind of horrible shit she's seen so she's like no i she knows how to keep herself under control i think it's excellent touch i have a point that really struck out to me and that is the uh the audio i mean first off the phenomenal score but also just the the foley the sound effects yeah mm-hmm. uh and in particular there is the sequence where um donald sutherland uh has to uh or recognizes that there is an imminent threat and he goes back to brooke adams house to warn her or rescue her mm-hmm. and he sees the husband who is de- most definitely a a snatcher uh so he recognizes he has to break into the house plenty of movies before and after have done the stealth sequence where we have our protagonists like having to slowly make their way around the monster or past or, or whatever or through a, a scary sequence. And so often in those, while their protagonist is sneaking around, they just cut the audio entirely. Yeah. And they give you silence. When you know that they're walking on like old floorboards, they're moving objects, and you'd get those little sounds. And this movie gives you all of that. It doesn't give you like just like, um, any moment of pure quiet during those scenes, you're listening tentatively. Well, he's to kind each of clomping around too, in general. Well, he starts out by breaking a window because, as they established earlier in the film, Jeffrey uh, wears uh, big headphones to when he watches basketball games on TV because Brooke Adams doesn't like listening to it or whatever. She's she's usually reading or studying or something. So yeah, he sees him through the window with his big old headphones on. Adults just like smashes the window, mm. but he's just like clomping around because he doesn't. Have have to be quiet i think it's nice it's well, a nice subversion i like it too because i think Sutherland, like he still like wraps his hand or he uses like his elbow or like cloth to try and break the glass so he's like he's still trying but like you're breaking glass there's right, only so sure. much you can do yeah and also you don't want to just do it with your bare hand like also yes <laughs> it's glass he's putting, he's putting thought up. into it but there's still like kind of a sloppiness um, that bring, raises the tension but you hear like the latch pulling and like all those little things and the creaks and the floorboards one of the little so details nice. i really loved about that is is for a second as he's sneaking up the stairs, we get a cut of what the guy with the headphones is watching. 
and it's just like clocks. Yeah, <laughs> it's he's just watching the clock. Yeah, you know? he's just he's just faking his faking it like the pod people do so well, just blending in. To your point about the sound effects and the sound work too, Cleveland, the sort of like pulsing heartbeat sound when like the pods are growing and developing yeah. that they always play. The sound guy uh, who who did the effects, I forget his name. Uh, but his wife was pregnant at the time, so he built that sound off of a recording from uh, an ultrasound uh, when they went to the doctor. Uh, so he used that and then built and layered on it to make that. Which is perfect. Yeah, because the, you know. the little little fetus pod babies are growing mm-hmm. in there. Man, that sequence disgusting. is excellent. When Donald Sutherland falls asleep outside and there's that group of pods Just that slowly emerge, that scene specifically of Donald Sutherland's double coming out of the pod as uh-huh. like a large fetus almost yeah like a big slimy slimy. yeah we were talking about in the last one how great the greenhouse scene is where there's you know they use sort of shadow and like the foam to hide a lot of the shortcomings of the effects and how it works really well in that on this one we get to see everything just like fully and it is really gross the effects the effects work is is awesome Mm. yeah like just just absolutely disgusting very organic and uh cronenberg reminiscent yeah kind Mm -hmm. of and uh just yes so this is really before Cron just before Cronenberg's heyday well I love it because it brings out those same feelings I had when you watch Tetsuo's transformation in Akira like mm-hmm. with this like this giant like horrible like fleshy baby that's you know because like like infants are are so strange you know and, and alien to us uh, yeah especially if you're a guy and you're you're, you're mid-20s it's like uh am I right uh, <laughs> uh yeah. kids scare me yeah, uh, babies are gross <laughs> man um, <laughs> no offense if you're a baby and you're listening to this yeah yeah of course of course uh, hashtag not in all in that babies. case goo goo caca in that case you're a, a fine looking baby proud to you good good job it's another tool in the box for uh bringing out that horror of the self you know of, yeah. of the horror of your own species well what i what i love too is the just like the added touches of detail like if if a, a pod duplicate of you is forming there's like your skin sort of starts to like flake a little bit it's almost like they they look like they almost have like a sunburn mm-hmm. uh that's especially great in that scene when donald, donald sutherland is asleep outside and you can see like the little pieces of skin on his face like blowing in the wind and like pulling off mm-hmm. uh it's just like it's not super exaggerated it's not super over the top like you get all of the really intense visceral horror with the pods for themselves yeah. forming but just like that little added detail seeing the effect that it's having on the person who's being duplicated in their body and we do actually get to see what happens uh later on when brooke adams finally succumbs which is another thing we mentioned last week that like we don't ever see what happens to the bodies and like that's okay but in this one we do and that's also okay mm-hmm. she just sort of like caves in on herself and like crumbles and it's so well foreshadowed with the garbage trucks i yes. love that so well 
done. It it reminded me of adapting Soylent Green, but well. Right. With like the scoop trucks. I love Soylent Green. It, it's nice. That's a, a movie we should cover oh, 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 at some point. Well, for a different reason, right? Like so- Soylent Green is, is delightful and we yes. should. You're absolutely right. And, you know, it also ends with our protagonist, you know, running, uh, running amok mad. No, people. But the garbage trucks and like the weird like lint material yeah, it's like them. hair we see that the pods sort of have like this hair like quality yeah, like to a, them. a fiber that you would see on plants yeah mm-hmm. the hairy fibrous sort of quality all of the and we see the that tangible effects of the we pods just see that like in the background through like all the movies just like garbage trucks just like with just mounds and mounds of this like weird linty hair and they're just crushing it up yeah. uh, almost burnt like yeah. charred which i guess you could probably uh come you could probably reason is just like a combination of the remnants of the pod and probably also the bodies of the originals oh, yeah. and just like all all collected together in a fucking dustbin. Yeah. Well, we can definitely collect, yeah, that it is the remnants of the bodies after seeing what happens. Yeah. She just crumbles. And it, it makes sense to uh, like the their skin flaking off because it's a it's a chemical reaction. So there's going to be a lot of heat. And um, also it's just they like, break out into sweats and uh, well, and the pods are like absorbing like an integral part of yourself. So they leave you like a husk. It's yeah, uh, it's not just psychic in this one. And I, I appreciate yeah. that. Man, the effects work is so good. It's so creepy and subtle when it needs to be. And then really not subtle also when <laughs> it needs to be. And but then afterwards, you know, like after that sequence where we really see it for what it is, uh, we go back to the pods still being kept. Captain Shadow and Mysterious. In the Um, fucking, yeah, then he goes into the fucking pod factory and just absolutely wrecks shit. I saw that Donald Donald Sutherland insisted that he do all his own stunts in this movie. Excellent. Fucking big baller dude. (laughs) Apparently, yeah, he came very close to uh, getting caught in one of those fireballs when the the factory is exploding. Rad. And that whole part where he's, like, climbing up in the rafters and, like, cutting the ropes with the axe, he wasn't wired up or anything. No way. Yeah. Because, like, the the rafters one thing but like right after the rafters when they're chasing him like he's going along the wall yeah like, he, the there are wall. no wires or anything yeah. donald sutherland just out there swinging his big old dick <laughs> and his wool tie and his wool tie <laughs> um before we get past the effects there's one thing i do want to mention uh is the very beginning the oh my god please yes. the, the, the opening credits let's unpack yeah. that the, the opening credits uh unlike the first one where we don't know where the pods come from until exposition later on when they're just like, we drifted from space, uh, which we still get with Leonard Nimoy talking later in the movie. But the very beginning of the movie in the opening credits is we we see like the alien world and these weird jelly like tube things. There's a whole drifting off into space of effects that they use. And it's all real it's all tangible and analog and to to establish something so foreign and alien to keep with practicals uh, is a feat in of its own, but to do yeah. it so precisely, I don't, I don't know what they're act- they're using for like the actual organisms themselves. Here's here's my guess. Okay, I would reckon that they shot it in a tank. Oh yeah, that's no, that's definitely what I was underwater. Say. I don't, I, I don't know what the organisms themselves are, but it's definitely underwater and it's reversed. The, the yes, footage yes, is yes, that as well. Um, and they uh, have these delightful like glass matte paintings of planets behind, and it, it, it and like smoke. Having having watched a lot of Star Trek recently, like it just this being from around the same era, like it does such a modern 
good job it's of a very an yeah, environment it's I mean, a the, very the, adept way to the to, budget is just astronomically more for this movie but like such incredible kudos to it like you could release this well, it that feels, sequence now well it holds it up so well today effective. you know like it feels one really of the alien one too. of the only minor things about something like the thing is the beginning with the ufo it hasn't aged the best right where a more abstract approach like this so much better is so timeless and they they even acknowledge that later in the script uh veronica cartwright says why couldn't this be aliens why do we why are we always waiting for for men in metal saucers you know but jeff goblin he's like, like oh, i'm not, not like <laughs> i'm not waiting for men in metal saucers that's exactly to your point ben is like that is truly alien and showing us that from the very beginning something that we can't comprehend it's so cool but like even the continuation of that once we get to earth and then it shows just like close-ups of like all of these different plants it's establishing like a leafy sort of imagery and then we see like the little tendrils growing into like these little buds on on plants which looked so it looked awesome the effects are great like the you just you see the the growth come out from nothing from the gooey substance and it it really feels like it's growing out and reaching its tendrils in real time and it doesn't feel like puppetry like it feels it looks like a growing alien substance yeah and i think i think they did it uh by like having a small pin poked like a hole behind yeah yeah, and then they push it through but like the way it spreads out like perfectly like organically is is incredible wow so good that opening sequence with like the the weird like mist tumbling off the rocks you know because they they had it underwater so like the weighted milk you know the milky effects uh tumbling down it's just such good astral horror where there's like just gelatinous sort of entities sort of floating about and again they don't they don't they don't feel menacing they just they just exist they're they're cancerous and i think a lot of modern cosmic horror could could take a lesson from this it's so much spookier than like just your your big collage wacky crazy uh festive imagery just keep it simple with these weird organic mm-hmm. shapes and that's uh, that's a tone, new favorite like it sets intro the tone for the rest for of the film so well mm-hmm. it's like they're like no we're gonna show you what this is from the beginning but it's it's done in such a way that it doesn't feel like it's over explaining you just get a sense of the weird and of the alien and it feels like a threat from the very beginning because the first thing we see after that sequence is Brooke Adams picking one of the pods yeah. off the leaf and taking it and, you know, carrying it home. And we see a group of uh, kids in the park with a teacher and the teacher's like, oh, there's some more flowers, kids. Go pick those flowers. So it's like we immediately know it's like, bum, bum, no, bum, bum. they're <laughs> yeah. here. Wah. They're already here. Uh <laughs> Great segue for fucking Kevin McCarthy's fantastic cameo. Yes. When Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams are driving around and a crazed man appears in the street running into people's cars and windshields screaming, they're here, you're next. And uh, when he comes to the window and sure enough, that upper lip ain't moving. Mm -hmm. It's Kevin McCarthy. It's your boy. It's he's uh, back. It's maybe one of one of my favorite film cameos ever. The perfect level of like, hey, look, look who it is mm-hmm. without being like too in your face. It's like just the the perfect little nod. And like, 
Well, because, I mean, it's it's a retelling, and it's that same instance, but we're getting a retelling from from someone else's perspective. So I you also, can imagine that the same events of the prior film, you know, happened the same way to him, right. just, you know, in the 70s instead. I like to imagine that he spent the last 20 years just running through the streets of America, <laughs> just bouncing <laughs> off of people's cars. Just took him that long. <laughs> yeah, he's just, yeah, it took him all that time to work his way up to San Francisco. Francisco. He got caught on a bus and dragged down to Mexico for a little while and had to start over. Um, <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. But the the way they end that too with him running off around the corner and we just see a, just like a massive crowd of people chasing him and then they turn around the corner and just see him like lying dead in the street with a pool of blood. So spooky. Well, yeah, the fact that everyone is just standing there just standing staring there at, at him. him. Yeah, you exactly. Know. And there's, there's such a, moment, a distance to it. There's a moment foreshadowing that earlier, uh, going back to the incredible sound design, where uh, several of them are talking in the street. And throughout this entire scene, there's always been background ambience. Uh, but there's just this one moment where they're talking. I can't remember what the dialogue was. but the And then just like the sound just dissipates. Mm-hmm. And then it collects back up again. And you just get a sense that there's... There's some living force outside that just needed to stop for a moment and do something else and move on. Those things in the background are just constantly there. Um, well, yeah, you get that great scene where uh, Brooke Adams is walking to work, for ex- example, and behind her in the scene, people are running away. Mm-hmm. And like, oh yeah, there are just like a couple people on the street, just like sprinting, yeah, just in the background. Which, I mean, if you ever lived in New York or like any like large city, like you see weird people doing weird shit all the time. So you don't it'd be, it'd think be about like it. that. Yeah, yeah, it just do. And but I, in I context, that. it adds so much to the film, you know? Right. Well, because we as the viewer from the beginning know that something is wrong here. So it's just like seeing those details in the background. It's like, yeah, the characters in those scenes wouldn't think anything of it. They don't know something's wrong yet, but we do. So it's like it, that that those added touches just make it so much sinister for our benefit. Also, just like when they're walking around and in the background, you'll see just like groups of people all just like sort of follow them with their heads, just like stop and, and just like watch oh. them. And the characters don't notice it all the time, but we see it. And something's just always slightly off. Yeah. It's never, t- you know, like apart from like, like someone's just like running or doing something strange. Like it's never... So, so unusual. It's always something you could shrug off, but but just just wrong. And a great moment to bring up another comparative modern film that is certainly standing on this movie's shoulders is It Follows. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. The, just so immediately comparable. And why both of these films are so effective, because it it cues you in. You know, there's the dramatic irony where you're aware that something is wrong in the background and it teaches you to look for them and to make it a, almost a game. Uh, yeah. And to engage you in the film to to find those horrible things. And it, it paces them out so well that they're always such a surprise when they come across your vision. And, um, yeah, you can really see the influence uh, on It Follows and, again, like Annihilation and, like, some of these other modern films that I love dearly. It's cool to kind of trace something back to the source. Yeah. Well, I mean, even, you know, this film is in a lot of ways paying uh, homage to films that came before it. Not even just the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but I, lo- I love that as, like, the, the language of film that it just kind of, you know, you can really follow things way much farther back than you'd think, the influences and 
the way they translate and evolve through time. Most definitely. Ooh. I would also definitely bring up a lot of like Hitchcock comparatives with sure. this movie because you know Hitchcock did several of those sort of uh, invasion style films and he was always so good at uh guiding the viewer yeah and like to to exactly what he wanted you to see and this film carries that those same hallmarks yeah uh, you're right I like think vertigo about... is probably like one I would I would think of because it does the same like or makes even, the same attempts to unsettle you or even like the man who knew too much or like the 39 steps mm-hmm. where there's some the kind birds. of and the birds uh when there's some kind of or uh, even something like uh it's not Hitchcock, but like something like Ministry of Fear as well, where there's sort of like a uh, shadowy force at work in the background that like you don't know who you can trust or who's a part of it or, uh, you know, whether they're watching you right now or not. Yeah, so you can trace a lot of that stuff even farther back. One thing I want to talk about a little bit is the ending. Yeah, So this sure. movie is much darker in its ending i would say than the original absolutely um, and some of that is recontextualized because it is in an urban city rather than you know a more rural town we really get to see the scale of the invasion in this film much more so than the original yeah and there's less hope for stopping it yeah in this film <laughs> like by by the time uh, we even Donald Sutherland even sees uh, a little before the ending, uh, right before uh, Brooke Adams becomes a pod person. But he sees uh, a bunch of pods being loaded onto a ship. Yeah. The docks. Mm-hmm. So we already like we knew this was spreading to other towns because they have the same scene of them distributing the pods and telling them like this group go to this town, this group go to this town. And the way he's drawn to it with just hearing music and thinking emotion a person same real way yeah people another nod just like, to the to the uh the original and in this case it's great because it's accidental yeah you know like it's it's just them leaving a radio station on and when he gets there it changes to something else and one, then i think it just becomes static. one thing i want to mention about that it's super minor but earlier in the movie jeff goldblum is playing with the radio and saying none of the stations are working Oh yeah, and then, and then, there, and then there's <laughs> definitely a radio, a radio later on. It's it's a minor plot hole, but you could, I did You could almost see really that as care. a world world building point where like the radio station has is being assimilated at the time, and it's being reassimilated, and that's why the stations are suddenly could changing be. again. But they're changing strangely. Definitely, I, I think it almost works. But uh, to your point, Ben, he sees the pods being loaded onto ships, and so like we know that this threat is if not already global, it sure as shit is about to be. And I think that absolutely does make the ending much, much bleaker. Yeah, well, and the the final sequence as well. Even before the final sequence, the lead-up to that, the way that that's all handled, where after he blows up the factory, you know, we see him hiding in, in the docks from, uh, from, you know, the pod people, and you know we see them looking for him and like one sort of like looks into his hiding spot with a flashlight and you know that the light transitions us to to daytime and he's like at his job and he's looking at everybody and we see that they're all pods so it's like oh what is he he's just trying to blend in and then runs into Veronica Cartwright in the park and she calls out to him and he uh squeals like a pig boy squeals like a pig <laughs> and points and uh then it cuts to credits which is great and we were talking about how 
out of context, like using that as a reaction gif is so funny. Because I've seen it many yeah, times it's, it's without knowing what its context shot. was. Right. And out of context, it's hilarious. Yeah, just because Donald Sutherland's face is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, also, not having the sound uh, it, when you have it in just gif <laughs> yes. format, even where it's just the face. But even with the sound out of context, it's pretty I, funny. It's still pretty I, funny. However, in context, it's really effective. It's terrifying. It's horrifying. And, and, yeah. Like, I I only saw it like comedically and found it to be hilarious beforehand. And even with that, suddenly having ra- a realization, like as the scene is beginning, like oh wait, that's what this gif is from. <laughs> um, uh, it still caught me off guard and left me unsettled. Yeah. Uh, like once once you put context back to it, it is it becomes horrifying. Well, it, again. yeah, it it feels it truly feels hopeless at that point. You mm-hmm. know, like it feels like they they have won. All all is lost. We've spent the last good chunk of the movie with Donald Sutherland alone, you know, after Brooke Adams has succumbed and he's having to fight this on his own. And it's like, he's fighting a losing battle, but he manages to strike back and destroy one of their pod factories. You know, it feels like a a decisive victorious blow. And then to just like have that at the end where, you know, Veronica Cartwright finally thinks she has a friendly face, somebody who's still human and to have that ripped from her and us as the audience the same time it's a it's a fantastic revelation and a great place to end the film too to just go to credits from that most definitely it's like yeah she's done for yeah it's it's game over at that point one thing we brought up last episode was talking about how you could modernize this film recontextualize it uh and we we recognize that it would be very difficult with the use of cell phones and the use of like just being able to get a hold of people immediately but this film actually kind of solves that problem on its own because the pods land in mass. Yeah. Whereas in the first one, it's one pod and it slowly grows out, you know, as a, and right. affects the, the town um, as, as everyone is slowly assimilated. And, they, and we're carrying the pods from place to place. Right. We see that they're that they're like delivering pods to specific people. So you also get the impression that there is a, a little bit of both. There's a sense of organization behind it, that they're getting the pods to the people who need to have them first. They're assimilating the right people first so they can prevent the spread of hysteria and and like the revelation of what's happening until it's too late they would get like politicians and police and people like leonard nimoy like people who are respected figures of authority figures of authority get them first and then it's too late you're immediately put under the impression that roughly half the city was was captured in that first night probably was you know, yeah. as opposed to one or two people um, and that makes all the difference in the world when it comes to stopping the spread well it feels more like an invasion as well yes uh, it really is the invasion of the body snatchers i love the scale i like i like the charm of the first one having it set in a small town and having oh, same. The, it feels more like a noir. And like, having, like, the doctor, you know, know everybody, uh, it works for that. But it's great in the remake to see to see it from a, a, a larger scale. It def- I think that is a lot of what contributes to the just general bleakness and sort of nihilism of the film. It's yeah, like, and when it's set in a city, you know, you get those strangers. Unlike, you know, like how the doctor in the original right. knew so many people. In a city, you don't know even close to everybody. So you yeah. really can't tell. Yeah. And the original like does a little bit with like the horror of the mob uh, yeah. with them like running down the hills as they escape the town. And this film just fucking starts with it. 
like we get we get just so many incredible sequences uh encapsulating that that yeah. feeling of an entire mass wanting to devour you yeah and, oof, oh so spooky so spooky very spooky i especially love that when through a lot of the big chase scenes at night when they're being chased by mobs of the pod people they keep it very dark and a lot of it is done in silhouette so mm-hmm. it's just sort of like the mobs of these sort of these faceless forms just chasing them and they're all shrieking and the first one they have like the uh the bomb alarm uh the air raid siren going off when when they're on the hunt but in this one the pod people are their own siren <laughs> well, and what i like is that we still get to hear a cool siren and that's uh as he's destroying the factory they still set off an alarm yeah, there that's true and uh really cool uh audio for that effect too because like they they didn't just do like one type of alarm they have like three tracked over each other and one's been like augmented a little bit like they're they're very alien sounding alarms and very very off-putting excellent stuff very jarring yeah i love it do you guys have anything else? No, I Is think that's terrain? all my thoughts. Oh, it's so rich. I just want to make sure I've yeah, covered all my thoughts on it. It's... I think we've given a, a pretty solid rundown of the great stuff that this film has to offer. There's a lot more that we could talk about. But I'd say at this point, like if you haven't seen this version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it, it's, it's worth prioritizing, that's I would say. It's a must. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess I'll give my rating first. Um, I won't rehash too much of what I've said, but this is a, a really masterful film from every angle, and, uh, and it is a film that should be seen and prioritized if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's it's going to be a perfect five for me. Like, easy. I don't have to think about that. <laughs> yeah, I think this movie reimagines the themes of the first movie and recontextualizes kind of the plot into a different era um and it also uses cinematography and style to harmonize with that excellently um the sound design and music is awesome it's a five for me i did remember uh one complaint i had about the previous film that was not matched the heroine in the first film when they're on the run doesn't take her heels off um, <laughs> and she keeps stumbling, and the heroine in this film does the same thing. Uh, she she keeps her heels on for her entire run. She's also running through an industrial yard, but, so it's a little more believable, though. But yeah, you're gonna get nails and stuff in your feet. feet. Yeah, and so Cleveland, I, I buy it. But Cleveland feminism is running in heels. Well, damn, you got me there. Well, in that case, canceled. Yeah, I, you know what? You're right. I'm gonna have to give this movie a five out of five. No film is perfect, but this film is definitely perfect for me. I would say that this is a, pr- a pretty it's, perfect it's film. Pretty yeah, damn close. Yeah. We're right be, on the edge. Yeah, of... I'd be hard-pressed to find any complaint about this what, whatsoever. <laughs> I agree. Uh, yeah, so that's another perfect 5 out of 5 film. We've, we've been on a roll with those lately. We've had a lot of them. But that's why we wanted to talk about this one for our, our second uh, birthday spectacular. Because it's a film that is worth talking about. We're called Pod People exactly. for a reason, and now I really know why. This is a five. Oh, wonderful! This, right this on is our a anniversary. Five star film, and we're a five star podcast, baby. You know, because of you, listeners. Because of you. Thanks, y'all. And uh, on that subject, if you haven't given us a five star rating on Apple Podcast, why not? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for. One of us. One, one of, of us. us. One of us. Become one of the pod people and uh, join our invasion. 
And uh, yeah, we would really appreciate it if you'd give us a, a nice rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. And of course, just like the seeds in the night, share it with your friends. Exactly. Help us spread like an infection. Let's all become irony poisoned cinephiles. <laughs> Let's do it. Hooray! Hooray! You too can feel no emotion. <laughs> exactly. One of us. One, One of us. <laughs> Dead inside. Dead, Dead inside. inside. You can follow us on Twitter at uh, PodPeoplePod and also on Letterboxd at Letterboxd.com slash PodPeoplePod. There you'll find the list of all of the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those reviews. And you'll find the rest of our uh, perfect, unanimous, five-pod-rated films, uh, The Hallowed Halls of the Golden Pods, available on Letterboxd. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome. I'm at Mr. Sheets. And I'm occasionally tweeting for at LightArc Studio for It Stares Back, our delightful indie horror game, which I'm sure you've checked out and seen at this point. Go give it a whirl if you haven't. Hit us up on our Discord, and we will say hello. Well, before we can sign out, we do have a little bit of business to deal with. Ben, tell us about what we're going to be seeing next week. Oh, yeah. So Shaking up the order of things a little we bit. We got a little bit of a special, special event next week. We have a screening of The Stuff, which is I'm one of so my excited. favorite horror movies of the 80s. It's going to be showing at the Carolina Theater on the big screen, and I'm super excited to be able to see it on the big screen. Same. I, I don't know. I, I've never seen it, but the title sounds kind of vague to me. I, I don't really get it. Oh, you will. <laughs> <laughs> Just can't get enough of this stuff. Yeah, this is going to be uh, a real treat. Love being able to see movies like this on uh, on the big screen. So uh, that'll be Ben's pick for next week. So tune back for our thoughts on the stuff. And last but certainly not least, we got to get paid, right, boys? Got to make that money. So get now that insert colloquial term for cash here. So it's time for a word from our sponsor. This week, uh, straight from the teat of the sponsor shelf. I shall bring you the sumptuous milk of our sponsor. <laughs> um, uh, uh, this week uh, is, is, is sponsored by the inevitable passing of time. Have you ever caught yourself reminiscing over the past? And thinking, wow, how has a year flown by so quickly? The inevitable march of death carries on with time. All those memories are dead. The past is dead. The future doesn't exist. All that exists is the maddening, endless present. The empty nothingness shall prevail. Eat Arby's. This message brought to you by Arby's? <laughs> Arby's. Sponsoring the podcast this week? Well, thank you as always for listening. Enjoy Arby's, and we will see you next time, and we'll have the stuff, so make sure that you bring the stuff. Wait, but if you bring the stuff, but we have the stuff, I, I, I don't understand. Then we'll all have the stuff. Uh, uh.